All right. Good evening. We pick up in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1 tonight. To read the book of Jeremiah well, there's a few things that we should keep in mind right from the beginning. Right before the book of Jeremiah, of course, is the book of Isaiah, which we just finished. And Isaiah lives out his life and dies a few generations prior to the book of Jeremiah. And so you may remember in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah confronts uh, King Asa. uh, And then in chapter 39, he talks with King Hezekiah. Okay, Hezekiah has a son named Manasseh. Manasseh has a son named Ammon. Ammon only reigns for a couple of years and then is, uh, then is put to death by some of his own cabinet and uh, the people revolt, protect his household and an eight-year-old by the name of Josiah uh, is put in place as king. It is during the reign of Josiah that Jeremiah's ministry starts and then it continues on uh, as we'll see through the uh, reign of Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, all the way through Babylon sacking Jerusalem and Judah. Um, And we find Jeremiah at the end of his book settled in Egypt, not in Babylon, but settled in Egypt. Uh, And so the book closes right there a little bit after 587 BC. The second thing you need to keep in mind is because of what I've just mentioned, Israel, as in the northern ten tribes, what part of the nation of Israel that is not Judah uh, has been wiped out by Assyria and removed from the land. The reason why that's important for the book of Jeremiah is because we will hear him speaking about Israel, but that's not Israel the nation, that's Israel the northern, okay? Um, And so he's going to talk to both Israel and Judah, and that will become more important tonight. All right, so let's pick up here in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying. All right, I wanted to read all four of those verses because I wanted wanted you to notice how the word of the Lord functions in Jeremiah. And so first, the book opens in the first few words there, explaining that everything that follows is the words, plural, of Jeremiah. Um, But we also see that Jeremiah is the one in verse 2 to whom the word of the Lord came, okay? And so there's a relationship. This book is both a record of the words of Jeremiah and because God gave him his word, it is also the word of the Lord. Whereas when we look at verse four and it says, the word of the Lord came to me, that's the repeated structural pattern throughout the book of Jeremiah. That introduces um, a particular oracle, a particular passage. And so the introduction proper is just these first three verses. 
And like many of the prophets, it tells us who Jeremiah was based on his heritage and then when his ministry existed. Now, one of the things that's interesting, uh, as I mentioned here, he begins in the rule of the boy king Josiah. Josiah is the last king who reforms Judah, takes a step back towards faithfulness and away from the ever-flowing downward slope of apostasy that ends in Babylon, okay? And so, um, so he's... His ministry starts during this age, but it's also interesting that what starts this reform under King Josiah is the discovery of the book of the law in the temple, okay? And so the first thing Josiah is doing is he's picking up where uh, great-grandpa Hezekiah was actively rebuilding and restoring the temple. So they've been taking an offering for that, um, but it's been neglected for a while, and so he gets that system up and running, and while they're cleaning out some of the storage in the temple, they find what Second Kings tells us is the book of the law. Most likely, they find Genesis through Deuteronomy. At the very least, they find Deuteronomy. And so the servant of the king reads it and goes, the king needs to hear this. The king reads it, and he goes, okay we really need to get back on track. And that's what leads to his reforms. What's interesting is that the priest who is the high priest in the days of Josiah who finds the scroll known as the book of the law is also named Hilkiah, the same name as Jeremiah's father here. Okay, Now, that would make a lot of sense out of the book of Jeremiah if not only is he... uh, serving at the same time as Josiah, but because of his family, he has front row seats to the reforms of Josiah. However, many commentators and close Bible readers are not convinced that this is the same Hilkiah, which might sound surprising to us since you've never met a Hilkiah, Um, but I understand that it's not too uncommon of a name Uh, Even in some of the genealogies of the Bible, we find multiple Hilkiahs. Side note, there's quite a few Jeremiahs as well. Um, But here's the reason why they argue that this cannot be the high priest in the days of Josiah. Notice it says first, he's one of the priests. It seems like a missed opportunity to name drop and mention that your father is the high priest during this time. But more importantly, it says one of the priests who were in Anahoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, two things there. First, uh, Benjamin is bordering Judah. In fact, if you go all the way back to Joshua when the land is apportioned, Jerusalem is the border town both for Judah and for Benjamin. Okay? In fact, Anahoth is not very far from Jerusalem, just a couple of miles. You could probably see Jerusalem from, from this city. However, um, Anathoth is one of the Levitical cities, and it's one of significant note because that is where the lineage of Eli goes to die. All the way back in 1 Samuel, Samuel grows up under the tutelage of a high priest by the name of Eli. In fact, Samuel's first prophecy is about the destruction of Eli's household that his family is no longer going to be in the business of being high priest. In fact, they're going to be relegated to relative obscurity. And if you look back, uh, what happens is one of Eli's descendants sides with one of the opportunists who tries to take David's throne instead of Solomon. 
And because he chooses the wrong side, he sits before Solomon, now enthroned, and Solomon uh, doles out a sentence. And he says, I'm not going to take your life, but I am going to banish you. Go back to your city of Anathoth and live out your days. You are no longer my priest. And so that's when Samuel's prophecy finally comes to be fulfilled. So that would mean then that Jeremiah is not of the high priestly line, but of the line of Eli. Now, there's a second reason why that's very likely. Twice in the book of Jeremiah, um, the first time in chapter 7, verse 14, and the second time in chapter 26, verse 6, Jeremiah makes an illustration for his present audience, and he basically says, don't trust in the temple. Have you forgotten what God allowed to happen to Shiloh? Okay. Shiloh is where the tabernacle was parked during the days of Eli. It's part of his family heritage. And so he can use it as an illustration because you may remember part of Eli's problem, the reason, reason judgment comes upon his house is because of his two unruly sons. And those two unruly sons take the ark into battle against the Philistines, expecting that to turn the tide for Israel, win the war. But actually, because they don't have God on their side, because they haven't consulted him at all, and they're just merely treating God like a form of tokenism, since the, the ark is there, everything will be all right, the Philistines win. They capture the ark and they sack the city of Shiloh. The tabernacle itself is destroyed. Okay? And it's not till after the ark is returned and set up in a new location that David goes and gathers it and builds the temple. Okay? And so the fact that he chooses Shiloh as an illustration seems significant and also seems to nail down the likelihood that this is not high priest Hilkiah, um, but of the lineage of, of, uh, of Eli. Now, the other thing we saw, as I mentioned, is that his reign begins in the days of Josiah, specifically in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Okay? I told you Josiah takes the, takes the reins, begins his rule uh, at the age of eight, Okay, and so the 13th year here moves the story into his early 20s. Okay, King Josiah is a young adult. The discovery of uh, the scroll, the book of the law, if I remember, is in the 15th year of, uh, of Josiah, or the 18th. I don't remember. It's one of the two. So just a few years after Jeremiah's ministry begins. Now, it mentions as well Jehoiakim, which makes sense because that's Josiah's son, uh, and then it jumps right forward to Zedekiah. There's two other kings that served during that time, but both of them only for two-month periods. Very short, so they're probably not on the list for that reason. But the most important thing here is I want you to notice that Jeremiah is the prophet that is most responsible for speaking of the Babylonian captivity. Something that he lives to see come to pass in his days, although he does not live to see it end. Okay? And so it's in Jeremiah, for example, that he says that this is going to last for 70 years. And it's that passage in Jeremiah that we find Daniel reading, doing math on his fingers and going, wait a minute, that's now. And he begins to pray for deliverance in the book of Daniel. But Jeremiah uh, uh, is kind of the most last primary prophet of warning to the people of Judah, to the degree that he sees come to pass the things he's been warning about. One last thing, we're about to look at the calling of Jeremiah, and like many other prophets we find in the Bible, he's reluctant to the call. 
But that's actually really surprising because Jeremiah is the most personally invested prophetically of all the other prophets. We saw on occasion where Isaiah seemed overwhelmed by the judgment that was to come, not on Judah or Israel, but even on the enemies of Israel. But Jeremiah has these large sections in it that we call confessions because they're so tremendously personal. In fact, Jeremiah composed another book of our Bible, which we call Lamentations, which is him literally just poetically weeping over the destruction of his people. And so it's a striking transformation that goes from a reluctant, unwilling prophet to the one that we call the weeping prophet. Okay. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention is he was so significant in Israel's history that when Jesus shows up in the scene and people are trying to explain who Jesus is, Jeremiah is one of the candidates. Well, some say that he's one of the prophets, and some say John the Baptist from the dead. Others say Jeremiah. Okay. So, back here in verse 4. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so we can imagine this call coming to Jeremiah, most likely in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, although we don't know how old Jeremiah was at the time. And what God basically says is, I have a calling for you, Jeremiah. I have a purpose. In fact, I've had a plan before you were born. I had this all laid out. I've consecrated you, which means I've set you apart. And then he says, I've appointed you as a prophet. Now notice the last little phrase there, I have appointed you as a prophet to who? To the nations. That's actually a little bit surprising. It's surprising because Jeremiah's ministry is almost entirely, until he's dragged off to Egypt, solely in the kingdom of Judah. Okay? Not only that, but unlike Isaiah, who extensively deals with the other nations in their future, Jeremiah is, for the most part, focused on Judah. But here he's identified as a prophet to the nations, and so most likely here the idea is one of universal authority. Right? There's no limitation set here on his authority. If you qualify as living in a nation, Jeremiah is a word for you. Okay? Verse 6, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. And so Jeremiah pushes back, and he says, That's all well and good, but I'm not qualified for this. I'm not educated for this. I'm not trained for this. In fact, notice when he says he doesn't know how to speak, he ties it to his age. Okay? And so the idea here is probably not that he can't put three words one after another. The problem here is that he knows he won't be respected because he's just a kid. Right? It's that his words won't carry any weight because he has no heritage, no lineage, no, uh, you know, um, foothold in society standards to be heard okay and so verse 7 the Lord said to me do not say I am only a youth for to all all to whom I send you you shall go and whatever I command you you shall speak do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord now notice God says two things there first he says oh you're going Right? This isn't an option. It's not a job interview. Jeremiah doesn't show up and God lays a proposition on the table and says, how does that sound? Uh, in fact, we're going to see that the difficulties that come with the job make Jeremiah relatively insightful. He spends a lot of time in prison, at least a couple of years in the bottom of a well. 
right? Uh, his own people of Anathoth will try to kill him. This is not an easy job. Um, but the first thing he says is, you're going to go, and you're going to say everything that I tell you to say. In fact, there comes an occasion where Jeremiah is so frustrated by the difficulty of his job that he just decides, I quit. I'm just going to shut my mouth, and I'll not talk. God can call me as a prophet, but I'm not going to open my mouth. And he says, but the word, it burned. It burned inside my heart, and I couldn't help but to let it out. And again, I find great encouragement in this because Jeremiah begins reluctantly. He's not into the job. He's not after the thing. But over the course of it, God's heart becomes Jeremiah's heart. As he carries the message, it transforms the messenger. And he he begins not just to agree with God, but to compassionately and willingly fulfill his duty, believing that his people are worth saving. The second thing he gives here is an encouragement. He says, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so here we have an encouragement of God's presence. He says, I'm not sending you alone. I'll be present with you. And then notice it's present to deliver you. Okay, and so this isn't uh, a promise of avoiding danger or confrontation or animosity. It's not that Jeremiah will be protected from enemies in the sense that he won't have them but that he will be delivered from their consequence. Now again, there should probably be a little bit of fine print right next to that. Because the deliverance for the most of uh, of the time may keep Jeremiah alive to prophesy another day. Side note, until it doesn't. Uh, We don't know how Jeremiah died, but tradition says he was sawn in two. Um, But second, It's not an avoidance of things, but an ability to endure and survive them. What God promises is divinely empowered survival. Okay. Um, And then notice verse 9, the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. The thing that Jeremiah said is, "I I can't speak, I'm only a youth. And now God activates by touching his mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah, I'm not asking you to construct political speeches that will get the job done. I'm asking you to speak what I give you to speak. Interestingly, when we compare this to other callings, we find some significant similarities. You may remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called, there's uh, a similarity in the fact that Isaiah says, I can't do the job specifically because I'm a man of unclean lips. And so that touch of Isaiah's mouth is mediated through an angel who gets a coal from the altar and presses against his lips, makes his lips holy, consecrates him for the work. Here it is God himself touching Jeremiah's mouth. Um, But there is also a distinct difference here. The way it happens in Isaiah is Isaiah hears an open call. Who will go? Who will carry a message to my people Israel? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. But the the statement here is, you will go. It's specified, it's nailed down, it's inevitable, it's unavoidable. Of course, another place that we could make a comparison between callings here is with Moses. Moses also is not expecting, not understanding, is approached, is reluctant, and argues with God over the calling. In fact, it's funny to go back and read in Exodus chapter 3, uh, Moses' conversation, because to Jeremiah's credit, it's just one back and forth. Uh, the negotiation rounds in Moses go round after round until God expresses exasperation. 
okay? Um, but there's another commonality between Jeremiah and Moses. Specifically, I want you to notice that back in verse 7 it says, whatever I command you, you shall speak. And then halfway through verse 9 it says, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. Those are word for word the two statements that are made in Deuteronomy 18 about Moses' successors. Okay? So in Deuteronomy... Moses is kind of preaching for the last time before the people of Israel. He's about to die. They're about to enter into the promised land without them. And so it's kind of his swan song sermon. And basically the thrust of it is keep the covenant that God has given you. But in the middle, in Deuteronomy 18, he makes a promise and he says, God will raise up from among you a prophet like me. And specifically in Deuteronomy 18, 18, it says, And he will speak whatever I command him, for I will put my words in his mouth. Okay. Now, that passage in Deuteronomy 18, 18, both sets Israel up to expect a succession of prophets. Not just Jeremiah, but Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Ezekiel, etc. But it's also interesting that Deuteronomy 18, 18 speaks specifically of a prophet like Moses. And Moses stands apart from the prophets because as God explains to Moses' brother Aaron, to my prophets I speak in dreams and visions. With Moses I speak face to face. This was so, so significant to the Jews that again by the days of Jesus they weren't looking for more prophets but the prophet. They had taken that proclamation in Deuteronomy 18.18 to be messianic in nature. They were looking for the one who knew God like Moses, face to face. And that, of course, is what we find in Jesus Christ. But here we see that Jeremiah enters into the ranks, and the language of this passage should draw our attention back. In other words, Jeremiah thinks he's unqualified. But the book of Jeremiah presents qualifications. He's here in a lineage of prophets doing the ministry both that Moses did and that Moses spoke of. Okay, so put my words in your mouth, and then verse 10, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Obviously there, that's an idea, again, of authority. I've set you over the nations. It's not that he's been brought on as a ruler, but that he will call rulers to uh, account. And then notice, he gives him six, six verbs that will define his ministry. To pluck up, to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Okay. Now notice the first four of those terms are all demolition terms. Some of them in terms of buildings, and some of them in terms of harvest, in terms of plants, agriculture, that's the word I want. Right? And so he's supposed to pluck up like we pull weeds, and he's supposed to tear down like we do dilapidated houses. But also notice at the end, he's also supposed to build and to plant. Okay? Now, it says two things. One is, even though Jeremiah brings a tremendous message of judgment, that's not all he brings. Like we saw in Isaiah, the prophets have a tendency to see judgment coming and also see something else beyond the judgment. None of the prophets come merely with a message of judgment without hope, except for Jonah. And he's frustrated because the hope still exists, even if he doesn't want to talk about it, right? And so Jeremiah is going to have a ministry both of dismantling, but also, and this is the second thing I want to point out, more than dismantling, and specifically dismantling so that something better can be built in its place. 
Okay? Just like we may tear down a dilapidated building so that we can build a new building in its place. Just like we might weed a field so that we can sow it with a good crop. Okay? Now, notice verse 11 opens again, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying... So this moves us forward here, whereas the first vision Jeremiah has, the word of the Lord here is his calling, the second vision is like his first assignment. It's the beginning of his ministry proper. The first word that we just read is mostly for Jeremiah. The second word is the first word Jeremiah carries to Judah. And so notice what it is here in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? Now this is another thing we see significantly in the prophets. Uh, if you look at, for example, the opening chapters of Zechariah, uh, and we'll see it a little bit more in Jeremiah, basically God gives them a picture and then interprets the picture for them. God gives them a vision and then says, let me tell you what the vision means. And so you can imagine how the ministry of the prophet works. He says, the Lord has shown me a vision, and here is what the interpretation is. It's an object lesson, divinely appointed for instruction. And so notice this first one here. He says, what do you see? And he said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, when we read that in English, we're clearly missing something. Because basically, Jeremiah is told, you're right, that's what I'm seeing. And the reason you're seeing that is because of this other thing. But we have a hard time connecting the dots. What does an almond branch have to do with watching? What you're missing here is that the two Hebrew words here for almond and watching are only a letter difference. It's a play on words, okay? Um, but still, the important thing is not the imagery here, but the point. And basically, the first thing God tells Jeremiah is that there's already a word in place. I'm watching over my word to perform it. I'm counting down the hours until my word will come to pass. I will be faithful to do what I have already said. In fact, Jeremiah does not introduce the danger of the Babylonians. Isaiah does that. Isaiah is the one who warns what's coming next. And uh, Jeremiah builds upon that foundation. And so the first thing is, uh, effectively... I'm still prepared, I'm still ready, I'm still moving towards what I said through my prophets, including Isaiah. Uh, side note, Hosea was also prophesying before the days of Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah is clearly acquainted with Hosea and makes heavy use of his language and his imagery and sometimes quotes him outright verbatim, okay? which I love because it's helpful for us as Bible readers when our Bible authors are also Bible readers, right? That's divinely sanctified interpretation tools, okay? Um, but so first he sees that there's something afoot. God has a plan. And then second, verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north, okay? And so he sees an open pit of flame and a pot over it with some sort of substance, but the pot is pouring from the north towards Judah, okay? Clearly uh, a sign of danger. Verse 14, the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gate of Jerusalem against its walls all around and against the cities of Judah. And there's two reasons why this opening line, this opening prophecy from Jeremiah is surprising. One is, remember, this is during the days of Josiah. These are days of reform. Now, it may be 
that this predates the reforms that we read about in 2 Kings. Uh, because we know when Jeremiah's ministry begins, and we're not told how much later this happens, that's possible. But again, before Josiah finds the book of the uh, Lord, he's already working towards some reforms. That only uh, solidifies his resolve to change things. And so it's surprising here that in the days of reform, there's a warning of judgment. We'll see why that's the case uh, in the chapters to come. But the second thing is surprising is here this vision of this pot pouring into Israel, this burning material, uh, threatens danger from the north. At this time, by the days of Josiah, the Assyrian Empire is over. Now remember, Assyria were the people to the north of Israel who had came in and wiped out all of the northern tribes. In fact, in the days of Hezekiah, they had even surrounded Jerusalem, conquered most of Judah, and God delivers Judah from that, and Assyria backs off. There's a ton of infighting over the next couple of generations, but by this point, Assyria is a dead empire, and there's a, there's a power vacuum okay, that leads to Babylon stepping up and becoming you know, the heavyweight champion of the ancient world. Um, so here, destruction from the north doesn't make any sense. The people are going, wait a minute, what do we have to fear from the north? We finally have relief from the north. But here's the thing. Babylon is to the east of Israel, but so is the Arabian desert. And so when Babylon does show up in Israel, guess what? They take a detour up and over the desert and down through the Assyrian territory that they've also conquered, side note, because uh, you don't conquer people that are miles away from you. You conquer them in order, right? But why the, when the time uh, Assyria gets here, they do come from the north, okay? The second thing I want you to notice here is that he says when this happens, the kings, the rulers, are going to set up thrones right in the center of the city gate. Remember what city we're talking about here, Jerusalem. What does it mean when kings are sat inside the city as opposed to out? It means that they now rule the city, right? He's pointing out here that they are going to take Jerusalem. They're going to siege it, and they're going to win. In fact, this uh, picture here of thrones, of the enemies of Babylon being set up in the gates of Israel, comes to pass in Jeremiah itself. Turn over to chapter 39. So chapter 39, if you have a good heading at the end of, uh, beginning of your chapter, is the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, this is a few kings later during the rule of Zedekiah. And so in verse 1, it says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that's the same one we find ruling and reigning in the opening of Daniel, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, that's a two-year siege, that's a long time to be surrounded, in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate, Nergal Selazar, Samgar Nebu, Sar Sikim, the Rab Saris, Nergal Sarazar, and the Rab Mag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon, just as Jeremiah said. Okay. Jumping back to chapter 1. Verse 16 and I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. But you, 
dress yourself from work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Okay. So again, this is the first assignment. And so God gives him the vision, sends him out to carry it, uh, and then he says, uh, it's time to get to work. Tell him everything that I command you. And then he says, don't be dismayed unless I dismay you before them. Okay? Which is a little bit paradoxical. Basically, God says, as long as you're not afraid, I won't make you afraid. Or maybe it better is, as long as you're not ashamed of this role, I won't make you ashamed. Okay? And so the protection for Jeremiah only applies to him standing in it existing in it you know if he is bold then his boldness will not be disappointed okay and then he continues here and he says verse 18 and i behold i make you this day a fortified city an iron pillar bronze walls against the whole land against the judah and its officials its priests and the people of the land and so not only does he give him a standard toe the line jeremiah stand up but he also enforces that standard. He says, I'm going to do something too. I'm going to make you strong against them. You stand your ground and the ground will be stood, right? Like a bronze wall. Verse 19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. He reiterates what we read earlier in the chapter. Chapter 2, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Okay, and so this looks back on the period of the Exodus when Israel is in the wilderness before they've come to the promised land. That's what it means when it says wilderness, a land not sown, right? For 40 years, Israel is provided for directly by God's divine intervention in the provision of manna. But he, he looks at this here like it was a honeymoon. He says, I remember when you were fully devoted to me, living out every day in dependence on me. Now, this is to some degree an idealized picture of this portion of history. Remember, the book of Numbers that records this time says that the people of Israel tested God ten times. Okay? But the point is here uh, that they, they were fully focused on God. They had not adopted the idols of their neighbors or of the Canaanites or these types of things. Their devotion was wobbly, but it was, it was soul. Okay? Verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. The second thing he invokes here is the idea of the firstfruits. Unlike Israel's pagan neighbors, who believed that the way that you came about having good crops was to evoke the gods into fertility through sacrifices, Israel didn't have festivals to bring about a good harvest, but thanksgivings to celebrate that God had already given them one. Okay? And so part of how they did that was the first fruits. They would bring an assigned portion before they ate or harvested any more to God as an offering to him as gratitude for the whole harvest. And here God says, in those days, Israel, you were my first fruits. You belonged so much to me that if anyone else tried to devour you, they incurred my wrath. Okay? You were devoted upon me. And notice there a slight other implication. If there are first fruits, what does it imply? a fuller harvest. Even here in Jeremiah, God says, I have a bigger plan than you, Judah, but 
You were the beginning of that plan. Verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Okay, you see that balance there of Jacob and Israel, of Judah and Ephraim? We'll continue to see that balance there. And it's worth pointing out here that Josiah's reforms even stretch into the territory of the northern tribes and begin to reestablish some places during that reign. Um, But here he says, hear the word of the Lord, and then verse 5, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Okay, and so God presents himself as innocent and demands evidence for their forsaking, right? We saw that uh, in the beginning. Um, uh, You have forsaken me, Israel. Where did we see that? Was that back in chapter 1? Yes. Uh, that word for forsaken, it's, it's covenant language. You either cleave to God and forsake all idols, or you forsake God and cleave to idols. It's the same language that's used in Genesis 2 for Adam. Therefore, a man shall leave, forsake his mother and father, and cleave to his wife. It's covenant language. In other words, this is still playing with the idea of marriage, and basically he's saying, what is the grounds for your unfaithfulness? What is the grounds for you leaving me? What is the grounds for you divorcing me, Israel? Where is your evidence? Okay. Then the second thing I want you to notice here is it says that they went after worthlessness and became worthless. They worshipped worthless things, and somehow that led to them also becoming worthless. There is a repeated idea throughout the Old Testament that you become like what you worship. In fact, it's stated directly in Psalm 115, verse 8, as well as in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. But the first place we see it is actually in the very beginning. In the book of Exodus, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, he's been up there for 40 days, and Israel gets restless, and they come to Aaron, who's both Moses' brother and the high priest, and they say, all right, Aaron, Who knows what happened to Moses? Who knows what happened to God? We want to get on with our lives, so build us an idol. Take our jewelry, build us a god, right? And so this happens. He builds a golden golden calf, and in the worship, uh, they basically break all commandments, one through ten, before they've even heard them, right? Uh, And so this is going on. But what's interesting is the accusation God makes of Israel at that point. He says that they are, and this is repeated throughout the Old Testament, a stiff-necked people. Do you know where the concept of stiff-necked comes from? It comes from stubborn cows, okay? Because they have those huge neck muscles. And when a cow fights against you, they're pulling against the yoke, right? With those huge neck muscles. That's the idea here, okay? of becoming like what you worship. And it's a, little bit, it's a little bit meta, by which I mean all of the idols that mankind makes are made after our own image. That's why the gods of all the old pantheons are um, contentious like us, they're capricious like us, they're sexually active and violent like us, right? But then somehow we end up not just making gods in our image, but falling short of what we were supposed to be and being remade in their image, like a copy of a copy of a copy that just degrades and degrades and degrades. And this is the problem with worship. Now, side note, it's also the positive of worship. 
And so when we get to the New Testament, it makes very clear that there's a correlation between worshiping Jesus and, guess what, becoming like him. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we behold glory after glory in Christ and we're transformed as we do so. And when we see him, eventually and finally fully, we will become like him because we will see him as he is. You become like what you worship. And so either you look down and worship things that are man-made and degrade beneath your station, or you look up and you become like God destined you to be. Remember what Genesis says, that we were made in the image of God to rightly reflect and represent him. And so here in verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of desert and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. In other words, they didn't just go after these false gods. They didn't go looking for the God who had acted in space-time human history who had made them a nation, who had brought them out of slavery, who had provided for their ancestors for 40 years in the wilderness, the one who actually works. They didn't go, where is he? They didn't cry out to him, but instead they went to the idols of their neighbors. Okay? And then he reminds them, not only did I carry you through the wilderness, but verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. So God provides for them in the wilderness, and then he provides for them this land that's, you know, a land of milk and honey, a, pr a fruitful and an abundant land. Um, but they don't remember that either. In fact, they end up desecrating that same land with their idol worship. Now notice in verse 8, it lays a heavy amount of the responsibility on the leaders of Israel. Verse 8, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds, those are the rulers, transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. And so notice here, although the entire nation is responsible, and side note, nobody emphasizes the importance of individual relationships with God more than Jeremiah. To the degree that even liberal scholars refer to Jeremiah as the prophet of individual conversion. We'll see that especially in chapter 31. Um, but here, he still lays a heavy weight at those who were at the top of the order of Israel, the priests who were responsible to teach God's word to the people, uh, the shepherds who were responsible to lead them, the prophets who were responsible to speak in God's place. All of that has fallen by the wayside. Verse 9, therefore... I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care, see if there's ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they're not gods? He says, look all around at your neighbors. Go into the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Cyprus. Go to the, uh, you know, the, the traveling Arabs of the east in Kadar aren't they still worshiping the same gods that their ancestors worshiped and their ancestors before them and so on? He says, where has another nation gone? We're done with our gods. We're going to move on to others. Now, if you know anything about religious history, you made it go, hey, wait a minute. What about Greece and Rome? But you need to remember that they had an open pantheon. They were happy to adopt other gods, but they never threw out the ones they began with. Okay. 
But what's more important here is he says they won't do that with their false gods. And yet, he says here, verse 12, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so he doesn't say Israel has followed in the footsteps of the other nations. They've done, they've done one worse. They've taken what works, the God who lives and breathes and provided their entire history, and they've turned away from him to the false gods of other nations. In fact, notice there it says, they forsook me the fountain of living waters. Now, if you're familiar with the words of Jesus, that's probably common language to you. That's language that Jesus evokes. And since we know in the Gospel of John that's connected with the Holy Spirit, it's easy to miss the point here. The idea of living water here isn't living in the sense of breathing or even in the sense of life-giving. It's living in the sense of a non uh, uh, non-quenchable water source, okay? When you dig a well, you either find a reservoir of water that will eventually run out, or you find an underground spring, which is basically a river, okay? It constantly flows, and therefore it is a permanent source of water. That is a living water, okay? And so the idea here, and remember, this is an agrarian society, uh, and it is pre-indoor plumbing, Okay? And so water is the essential element needed for life. And he says, you're like a man who had on his property an underground, never need to be replenished, never run out spring, and you walked away for it for a swimming pool. Okay? That's what a cistern is. A cistern collects water as it falls. Okay? But not only that, but notice he says the cistern that you've chosen is broken. It's cracked, and so the water that fills in it just seeps out. It just doesn't make any logical sense. But the second thing I want you to notice here is that I think the order is significant. I would suggest to you that you never make broken cisterns until you forsake fountains of living waters. I would suggest that we never turn unto idols until we turn away from the living God. Even in Paul's great diagnosis of what's wrong with humanity in Romans chapter 1, they first reject the truth suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They first refuse to give thanks to the God who made them, and then they're given over to foolishness. And then they make gods in the image of made things, of birds uh, and man and other crawly things, right? Um, There is an order here, which I suggest means uh, that idolatry is something that we can avoid not just by playing defense, but having a good offense. In other words, one of the ways to keep you from settling for worshiping things that will not satisfy you in your life is to actively worship the one who will. The more that you cultivate your relationship of dependency with God, the less you'll need to look anywhere else for your needs to be met. But unfortunately, this is where Israel is at. And now verse 14, is Israel a slave? Now, there again is important. Notice the word there. Not Judah, Israel. He's talking about the northern tribes here. He says, is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? Okay. He's saying, wait a minute. Didn't I deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt? Didn't I set them free? Weren't they a free people? 
How is it that they've been devoured? Verse 15, the lions have roared against them. They've roared loudly and, ma- loudly and made his land a waste. His cities are in ruin without inhabitant. Now, one of the things we need to watch out for when we read the prophets is what commentators call the prophetic perfect. Okay? It's a tense, which is basically past tense, but the only reason the prophets use it is not because things happened before them, but because they're so assured to happen, they might as well talk about them in past tense. It's as if they're standing in the midst of the rubble in their vision, and so they're talking about something that's already happened, even though it's future. But that's not what this is. This is Jeremiah talking in the days after the northern tribes of Israel have been destroyed and just saying, will you just look around you? In other words, if Judah should sense danger, exhibit A should be what happened to Israel. We'll see more of that to come. Verse 6 excuse me, moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphnes, those are not cities in Assyria or northern Israel or Babylon, those are cities in Egypt, okay? Moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphnes have shaved the crown of your head. Wait a minute, Judah, you're not slaves either, and yet now you're wearing the accoutrements of slaves. Here's one of the things that, that happens with Judah once Israel is gone. Both with Assyria and with Babylon, they're constantly tempted to make an allegiance with Egypt, to make their old slave master their alliance and trust in them for deliverance. Side note, it never works, okay? It always goes wrong, okay? And so the point is here, I set you free from Egypt. Why are you becoming their vassal again? You know, at this time, like I said, there's a power void, and so Egypt sees an opportunity, And instead of coming and conquering in Israel, Israel just bows down to the bully who takes the milk money and just says, hey, I'll just get it to you 9 a.m. every morning. He becomes a vassal of Egypt. That's one of the things that happens here. Remember, too, there's a relationship in the Old Testament between politics and religion. It's much more significant than today. An alliance that was political almost always had religious connotations because if you're trusting in a nation, you're also trusting in their gods because that's who they're trusting in. Uh, in their power, okay? Verse 17, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of Euphrates? Remember the image at the beginning of this? You had the fountain of living waters here. What are you doing drinking from another man's cistern? Here, Egypt and Assyria, why are you going for them to protect you when you ran from your protector? Verse 19, you're evil, will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. In other words, he says, aside from judgment, there's natural consequence. Your choices are so bad, they're going to lead to bad consequences. He continues on here, he says, um, know and see that it is evil and bitter. I believe it's in Isaiah, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience for yourself. Partake, enjoy, be satisfied. But there is a second route here and one that God is willing to use, one of his forms of discipline, which is if you desire something so much, he'll let you have it. But you won't taste and see that it's good. Instead, you will find it evil and bitter. For you forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, But you said, I will not serve. 
Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. So notice here, God says, I set you free, and then he criticizes them for saying, we will not be servants. The point is here that when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he delivered them unto himself. But they threw off the service of that. They said, no, we will be free, free of your oppressive rule, God. And then what happens? They serve all these idols, and then notice verse 21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I am not unclean? I've not gone after the bales. Now, notice here, God says they're guilty and that soap isn't going to get the job done. The idea here is that they are trying to cover up their sin, not admit it and take care of it themselves. Okay. As we'll see, God wants them to be clean and he even has a way to do it. He will invite them to come like it says in the opening of Isaiah. Right? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. God can wash away their sins. They cannot. Instead... They seek to cover up their sins in ways that don't work and deny them and hide them, which has gone really great for humanity all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden trying to hide from God, right, to cover themselves with fig leaves. It's a process that doesn't work. It's a man-made religious process that doesn't work. They need a deliverer. They need a savior. In fact, it's more extreme than that. Keep listening. He says, look at your way in the valley, know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. Okay. Young camels are unwieldy like most young animals and they don't, they don't just walk straight paths, they dart hither and thither, etc. But notice he moves on and he talks about a wild donkey here because he wants to add to the image. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. And so he moves on to a wild donkey here in heat, which is good because wild camels in heat doesn't really do anything. But this is observable in a female donkey. She goes looking for mates in her time uh, of heat, okay? Um, and so the point is here, these false lovers didn't even have to come looking for you. You were on the warpath. You went running looking for them. You were like a crazed wild animal sniffing the wind. Verse 25, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless. For I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. Now, notice the pattern here. God brings them out of true slavery and into his service. They deny that for the sake of autonomous, fee, uh, uh, autonomous freedom. They put themselves into the service of idols and now they're not free to leave the idols behind. Right? That's what it means when it says, you say, it's hopeless. I've gone after foreign gods and I have to go after them now. They're stuck. Okay? That's the thing about human freedom. If we seek freedom through autonomy, we always become slaves. And the reason is because when we rebel against God, effectively what we do is sin. And this is what Jesus says about sin. He says, don't you know? that anyone who sins becomes a slave of sin. And so we may begin by making active 
rebellious choices. But after a while, we can no longer choose not to do those things. We become enslaved to the things that we thought would set us free. And so this is the pattern, and Israel finds itself in this place. What does that imply? This is a wrong they can't right. They've turned a path and walked down it, and they can't come back. This is why the Bible constantly maintains that the issue is not that God is out there if we'll only find him, but that we are lost and need God to come and find us. Okay. When Jesus tells the parable about leaving the 99 and going after the lost sheep, he goes out, he finds the sheep, he lays them on his shoulder, he brings them home. That's what's necessary because of the slavery that sin brings. Side note, if you've tasted and experienced and woken up and recognized the bondage you find yourself in, there is hope. You can't break the chains. God knows that. But he can. He set Israel free from their physical slave master in Egypt. He can set them free from their idolatrous ones as well. And it's the same in our life. That's why Paul is crying out in Romans chapter 7 and he says, the things that I want to do, those I don't do. I want to do them, but I can't. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I practice. I don't want to do those things, and I can't stop doing them. He says, woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is a who that can deliver him. It's available if he'd cry out to deliver. In other words, the undertone message of Jeremiah here is ask for help. It's ready and available. If not, verse 26, as a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They're going to be caught in the act, right? Uh, it says, they, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth, for they've turned their back to me and not their face. But in times of trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Okay, now there's two things here. Um, first, just a side note, Jeremiah probably makes a little jab at the false religions of Israel. When he recognizes there a tree and a stone, the tree, that would be the Asherah pole and the groves that we find. The stone, that would be the worship of Baal. And what's interesting is Jeremiah re reverses the gender here. And so Baal is just the word for Lord. Sometimes it's even used in Hebrew for husband. But here, that's the mother. And the Asherah pole that is this representation of Asherah, the, the codsort, the female god of Baal, you were my father. He's intentionally getting it wrong just to be annoying. Okay? Uh, but he moves on here, and, and he says, the way this is going to go, you're going to be caught in your shame because you'll cry out for help and it will be too late. He says, you're, you're flooded with gods. Okay. Now, one of the reasons we're going to see that Jeremiah hits this is not because God is not still in the game to save them if they would cry out, but there is a half-hearted version of this. It's possible for them to try and do this without doing it. Okay. Let's continue. Verse 29, why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. He says, for generations I've brought discipline on you to get your attention. For generations I've let you taste the bitterness of your ways and you're still sat in them. 
He says, on top of that, I've sent you regular and consistent warnings to the prophets, and you've responded to those warnings by putting the prophets to death. He continues on here, and he says, verse 13, And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Now, back in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, I'm the one who led you out of the wilderness. I'm the one who led you through the darkness. And he says, but you're acting as if I am the wilderness. You're acting as if I am the darkness. He says, why then do my people say we're free? We'll come to you no more. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Imagine a wife in a marriage looking down and going, oh, that's weird. I don't know where I got that ring. Right? That's what he's saying. He's like, you've lived in the context of this whole thing with the festivals and the sacrifices and the temple. Right? They never stopped doing any of these things. They stopped believing that these things mattered. It became just going through the motions. Okay. Verse 33, how well you direct your course to seek love so that even wicked women you have taught your ways. In other words, you're so good at your sexual infidelity, prostitutes could learn of you, right? The professionals could take tips from Judah at this point. Also, verse 34, on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent, okay? Now, notice again, there is a vertical aspect of this, idolatry, and there's a horizontal aspect, social aspect, justice aspect, as there always is. He says, not only have you been worshiping other gods, but the blood of the innocent poor is on your hands. And when he clarifies here and he says, they didn't break into your house, it's because the Old Testament allowed allowed in self-defense that if you found someone in the dark in your house and you killed them, okay, just like our law does, that you are not a murderer, okay? Um, But he says, but you have no such excuse excuse. The, the violence on your hands, the blood on your hands, is not the blood of innocence, but it's the blood of determined and consistent guilt. And yet you maintain that you're innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. I think that's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? What is the reason they're going to experience judgment? Their unwillingness to own up to their sin, to confess, to see how deep their darkness really goes. Jesus says the same thing to the religious leaders of his day. He heals a blind man and he makes this point that the blind are leaders of the blind and that they need someone to take them by the hand and guide them who can actually see. And the religious leaders are suspicious. They think they're t- that he's making a jab at them. So he says, are we blind? And he says, I wish you were. Because If you were blind, I'd give you sight. But since you say, I see, you will continue in your blindness. Verse 36, how much you go about changing your way. You should be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. Remember, they were trusting in Egypt. Verse 37, from it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the image of hands on your head, I think, like, come out, we've got the place surrounded, right? You've chosen poor company, and now you're arrested. The idea here is of shock. It's, it's this type of movement. But the, the idea is the same. The idea is if you trust in Egypt, you're going to be shocked at how it works out because it's not going to help. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. 
If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Okay, this is drawing from the divorce law in Deuteronomy 24. To summarize, it basically says, if a man divorces his wife and the wife remarries another man, and then that man either dies or divorces her, she can't go back to the first husband. And so what he's about to do is talk about the fact that he's divorced the northern tribes of Israel, and yet he's going to do the unheard of and take them back. Okay? He divorces them because of their unfaithfulness, but he's going to take them back. But he wants to show that this is above and beyond what the law requires. This doesn't make, uh, you know, this isn't justice for the, the wife Israel, it's mercy. In fact, it's grace. It's above and beyond. Would not that land be greatly polluted? You've played the whore with many lovers. Would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you've sat awaiting lovers. Like an Arab in the wilderness, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. These are the disciplines that were talked about earlier. God promised back in the end of Deuteronomy that he would um, demonstrate Israel's unfaithfulness in consequences, including their harvest and their rain. And yet notice here, yet you have the forehead of a whore and you refuse to be ashamed. As we persist in sinful behavior, we no longer blush about it. And even when we're caught in the act, we don't show any sign of shame. That's what it means of the forehead of a whore here. It's no longer something to be embarrassed by. It's just something that they're bold in. Okay? Verse 4, Have you not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be hangry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you've spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Okay? And so here we see that they are verbally crying out. They're saying, God, where are you? But while they've still got their hand in the cookie jar, while they're continuing you know, this side door thing. It's like a husband, uh, well, and we might as well use wife, and that's just because there's a reason why God's imagery is always one directional gender. But it's like a wife who says, look, I really want to make this marriage work, but continues to see her paramour. It doesn't work. Okay. Verse 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, northern tribes again, how she went under every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Okay, so here, and we'll see this again with Jeremiah, I think we see it with Ezekiel too, he treats Israel, the northern tribes, and Judah as if they were sisters. And so the first, uh, first thing that happens is the northern tribes go into idolatry, won't relent, and go through judgment. But Judah, their whole history is parallel. They watch this whole thing play out from beginning to end, and now they're the only ones left standing, right? And so notice uh, here, verse 8, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Okay. And so the first one, Israel never returned. Judah did, but only on the outside. Again, do you see why that's significant for Josiah's day? 
He brings about these national reforms. He knocks down the altars, but what if they still exist in people's hearts? They're externally turning back to God, but it's not going to count unless it's true. Okay. Notice this statement in verse 11. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Now, that's kind of a stunning turn of phrase. Faithless Israel, who would not relent of her whoredom, so I divorced her, has shown herself righteous. Why does he use that language? What he's really trying to say is Judah is even worse than Israel. Why? Because Israel didn't have an example play out right in front of them, and Judah did. Also, because Judah's return was this half-hearted outward show, as if that matters at all. I don't know about you, but if it was me who had had an unfaithful spouse, and my spouse came back to me and promised to set things right only to discover that she hadn't put away these other relationships, that would be harder on me than if she'd just left. That the relationship meant so little to her that she could just make a show of it to reserve her, uh, her reputation or whatever other ulterior motive may be involved. That's the problem here. Jesus says the same thing to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, to Laodicea. He comes to the church, they're unrepentant, and he says, I would that you were either hot or that you were cold. But since you were lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I'd rather you'd leave me entirely or come back to me. But this wavering between two places doesn't work. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return faithless Israel. Now remember the context here. Here Jeremiah goes and he speaks over forsaken territory where Israel is gone and he calls them back. Okay. Remember who he's actually talking to though. Israel isn't there to hear this message. They're scattered to the winds. But Judah is and that's the point. The second thing I want to point out here is when it says return faithless Israel, there's a play on words there that we can't see and it's significant because this is Jeremiah's favorite word. This word translated return or to turn or to turn around or to repent. It's translated a whole bunch of ways. He uses it more than any of the other prophets do and so literally what this says is turn turned Israel, turn back turned Israel, okay, declares the Lord. It's similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, when he says that repentance towards God is worthy not to be repented of. So turn away from your sin and unto God, and then don't turn away from God again. Right? He says, I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your fa favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. He says, Israel, come back. I'll receive you. I'll take you in entirely. But remember, this is primarily for Judah's sake. Return, verse 14, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master, and I will take you from one city and two, from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I'll give you shepherds after my own heart. Now remember, the northern tribes of Israel were different than Judah in the fact that they didn't have a single long-standing lineage that they could trace back to David. Instead, they had usurpers who took over and started a new monarchy and then were wiped out by the next one. Okay? 
There were four good reforming kings in the history of Judah. There were zero in Israel. But God says, come back and I'll give, give you good shepherds. In fact, notice that language, shepherds after my own heart. That's David's label. I'll give you kings like David if you come and return now. Verse 16, and when you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed, and it shall not be made again. Notice the point here. Israel didn't have the ark. Judah did. When the kingdom was divided, in fact, uh, I always get this wrong, Jeroboam, I'm going to take the 50-50 over Rehoboam, Jeroboam says, as long as the ark is the only place for my people to worship, they're going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to fall back in love with the lineage of David, and I'm going to leave my rule. And so he creates two bronze altars, two bronze calves, sets them up at the northernmost point and the southernmost point in Israel. But notice the promise here to Israel. Israel, you're not going to have to worry about not having the ark anymore. In fact, notice what he says next. He says, uh, it shall not come to mind nor be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. Do you remember what the ark looked like? It had the mercy seat on the top, and there were two angels bowing down, facing one another, and looking at the seat. That was the throne of God. The ark was the throne of God. And he says, but now I'm going to make Mount Zion itself the throne of God. He's looking forward to a time where Jerusalem itself will be the temple. Or more importantly, the holy of holies, because if you keep reading, the whole world will be the temple of God. And so he's looking forward to this time, and he says, A nation shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Now notice there's a little subtle pretext there. What is it? Israel's out right now. Judah's going to be too. They're also going to be gathered from the land of the north because they're also going to be exiled through Babylon, right? But he says, I'm going to gather them together and I'm going to reunite them back into one people, one nation. Verse 19, I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. And so he says, like a father, I provided everything for you. And yet you turned away from that relationship. It's just like uh, the two sons in Jesus' parable, where the older brother only sees his father as a master. I slaved for you. And he says, son, all I have is yours. Right? He, he's so bound up in the gift that he forgets the giver. And that's what happened with Israel. Then he changes metaphor from father-son uh, to marriage again. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they've perverted their way and they've forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Again, notice how all-encompassing the offer is there. They don't have to come back faithful. They just have to return in their faithlessness and God will heal it, right? Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly the Lord is our God. Lord our God is salvation of Israel. 
Suddenly here, the language speaks out, and it's not God speaking here, but the returning people from Israel. And I would suggest to you that this is Jeremiah trying to prime the pump. God is so interested in them coming back, they don't even have to write their own apology. He's written it for them. He's made it available to them. Just here's, here's what needs to be done. Verse 24, but from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in shame and let our dishonor cover us for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And so the conf- confession here is holistic. It's full. It's not just I have sinned, but we have sinned. It's not just we have sinned, but our fathers and their fathers all the way back. It's owning up to the totality of it. Okay. Now there's more to go on this, but we're going to stop right there tonight. And we'll pick up in chapter 4 next week. Let's pray. Father, you are so good that it makes us foolish to forsake you. But you are also so good that when we do so, and we find ourselves ensnared in chains, when we do as Gomer, the wife of Hosea, did, and throw ourselves into adultery and then find ourselves enslaved as part of the sex trade, You come, you break those chains, you bring us back. And like the younger son in Jesus' parable, not just to make us a servant in your household, for we're not worthy to be your sons, but while we're still afar off, you run to us, you embrace us, you clothe us, you put a ring on our finger, you kill the fatted calf, you throw a party and you rejoice because we were dead and we now live. Lord, we may be foolish for forsaking you the first time, how foolish would we be to turn from you again when you've gone after us in such a significant way? Father, we just thank you for who you are. And we long and look forward to this promise of becoming like what we worship because the one we worship is good, is loving, is patient, and is glorious pray, Lord, that you would continue the work that you began in us as a faithful father. You are the potter and we are the clay, as we'll see in Jeremiah. Make us anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.